This is May It Please the Internet, a podcast brought to you by Revision Legal, lawyers who represent businesses that make money online. Hey everyone, this is John DiGiacomo, and you are listening to the May It Please the Internet podcast, and I'm joined today by Chris Carroll. Chris, how are you today? Doing good, John. How are you doing? I'm pretty good. Coming through the holidays, uh, was a bit sick, but now back at it, and I'm excited to be joined by Chris today because we're talking about something that has been in the news lately that I find interesting, and I thought Chris would find interesting as well, and that is the... Dungeons and Dragons Open Gaming License 1.1. Chris, I'm I'm assuming you've heard about this. Yes, super exciting stuff. It's the mesh of nerd plus the legal aspect of it. That's actually kind of weirdly exciting. Yeah, and apparently people are losing their freaking minds over this open gaming license. And I took a look at it and I wanted to talk about it because I think a lot of the hot takes on it are getting things wrong. Yeah. And some are getting things right, but from a, an attorney's perspective, even some of the attorney commentary that I've seen out there is just bad. And so I thought it'd be helpful for us to talk through it. But before we do that, Chris, what is your experience with Dungeons and Dragons? You know, it goes back to, we might have a similar experience. I had friends that would play it when I was younger, like in elementary school. I never really got into it. They would try to kind of pull me along. My parents were in that hyper-religious sort of, mentality. We grew up in a Catholic household. So any mention of Dungeons and Dragons was immediately met with like crosses and holy water (laughs) at us. So they kind of pushed me away towards it. And, you know, I had friends that just stuck with it. And weirdly enough, recently got pulled back into it. I'm actually in a campaign now in my 40s, which is odd, but never really played it, you know, growing up. So Chris, my experience was probably similar to yours in that I was introduced to Dungeons and Dragons because my sister had two friends, Matt Bick and Kaz Viscontis. They all went to the same high school together. And my sister brought home a copy, I believe, of the first set of rules of Dungeons and Dragons. Maybe it was second edition. I can't remember. And she had it taken away by my mom, because my mom saw the cover, and she thought it was satanic, because she was a big Catholic woman. Right. And took it, and I took it from her subsequently. (laughs) That's amazing. That's incredible. So Matt Bick, though, I think we have a shared connection there. If I'm thinking of the right Matt Bick, did he have a brother, Joey? And he's like a second cousin of mine, which is the weirdest thing. So this is a guy who tried to become a priest. Wasn't yes. A, yeah. Okay. Yeah. He, same he went to, uh, he was overseas. I believe he was in Russia and yep. he got like frostbitten. Not to get into a, a total sidetrack. This was one of the OG nerds, though, of my life. Growing OG up. nerd for sure. I was more close to Joey, but Joey and I would go to his house and Matt had boxes and boxes of comic books in long boxes. I'd never even seen a long box growing up and he actually kept them nice and all of mine were all getting like ratted up and everything, but he was a good dude for sure. Yeah. Unfortunately, he's passed. He had diabetes and passed away and he was the guy that introduced me to computer games. Nice. And I went with him to Jelly Beans, if you remember Jelly Beans (laughs) in Flint. And he picked out Dungeons and Dragons, Pool of Radiance, and this other game called Dreamscape. And he's like, play these. Nice. And I brought them home, installed them on my Apple IIgs. He helped me play through both of them. 
So that is crazy. So yeah. this is this is why Dungeons and Dragons is important, right? It it brings people together. It's this game that it's beyond a game. It is like a lifestyle for people, like yeah. the OG nerd Matt Bick. Right. Yeah. Some people they just get you know really into it, but it's very oddly accessible. That and that's kind of we're seeing that with the resurgence. But growing up, I don't think a lot of people really understood that you didn't have to be a Matt Bick to like Dungeons and Dragons, even though most people kind of were that way back then. Yeah. And I didn't get into it until two years ago. One of my friends who's a professor at the local college here got into it, I think because of Stranger Things. Like Stranger Things was the impetus. You know, everybody saw people playing in Stranger Things. And so he was like, I'm going to pick this back up because he had picked (laughs) it up years ago. And so he started a campaign. I joined my wife, who had never played any role-playing game in her life, joined. And we got super into it. And we've been playing once a week now. Nice. But back in the day, this was just a game played in the basement. 1974, Gary Gygax creates this game with a group of his friends. It's published by TSR. You know, you go through that satanic panic period like we just discussed. Yep. And then it falls off the map, right? I mean, did you hear about it between, you know, the time that you started thinking about it back when you were a kid and then now? No, I I think the last thing that I remember really seeing about it was browsing YouTube and getting recommendations for like uh, Roll20 or whatever, Critical Role or some of these other content creators that are out there making this kind of content and I was like, wow, that's kind of interesting. I didn't really even think of a YouTube series about just people playing D&D, but really hadn't given it a second thought in, I would say, 20, 30 years. Yeah, that's how I got reintroduced to it, too. In fact, my wife listens to a podcast. Somebody was on from Critical Role. Critical Role is this, well, it's a number of things now, but originally I think it was a YouTube show or yeah. maybe a podcast where they were professional voice actors who were playing a and d game. And it's really entertaining. But my wife had heard one of the characters on a podcast. She said, hey, you got to check this out. It's kind of funny. We watched it sitting in bed one day. And then that that was my first recollection as well of like, okay, this stuff must be coming back. But in 1997, they basically were bankrupt. TSR, who was the publisher, ran out of money. And it was purchased by this company, Wizards of the Coast, who was subsequently purchased by Hasbro. And... It was dead for a while. Yeah. I mean, they weren't doing anything really with the IP. More editions would come out because I think around like 97, we were probably at second or third edition probably. And then Wizards of the Coast takes over. So they kind of get into a couple more editions. Most people are thinking of playing fifth edition at this point. But, you know, I didn't really hear much of anything about it. You would see maybe a rule book or two in a used bookstore every once in a while, but didn't have this footprint that it has now in just general pop culture and media. Yeah, not at all. And one of the things that, and the reason we're talking about this today is one of the things that Wizards of the Coast did to try to make this stuff more popular because it was just on a downward trend, other than some successes in video games. Yeah. They created this open gaming license. What is the open gaming license? So a good way to think about that is... It's a permission that Wizards of the Coast is giving to other people to use their IP assets in a way that is okay for Wizards of the Coast, for lack for to put it in real basic layman's terms. It's just a way that you're not going to run afoul or risk some kind of infringement claim coming down from Wizards of the Coast because you wanted to create your own sort of source book or spell book that's using elements of 
D&D, but it gets very specific as far as, you know, what you can and can't do with the IP properties. Yeah. And it's a really innovative idea. We see this in software. So we have open software that people release code. They allow you to do certain things with it. The intent is to get the code out there, make it freely accessible and available. And then you hope that people are going to build on that and make something better. And this was the same idea with the open gaming license. And so the open gaming license was created at the time. There was this guy, Ryan Dancy, who was the architect. And he said that this open gaming license was essential to expose more people to the core mechanics of Dungeons and Dragons, to those classes, races, spells, monsters, and to to let people kind of do what they wanted to do with it without, like you said, running afoul of Wizards of the Coast intellectual property. Yeah. Or always having to go to Wizards of the Coast for permission on, you know, can I or can I not do this, which would just jam up a lot of, you know, the creative process. This was at least an easy way for people to know that they could kind of do something within limits with the properties. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, this license, I took a look at it today and I got to be frank, like it is garbage. Like I cannot believe, (laughs) I mean, like we draft contracts for a living. It's pretty garbage. And the idea that a company that is as large as Wizards of the Coast would produce something like this is surprising, but it's also testament to how much they trust their fans. That's true. Yeah. And when I say it's garbage, there's a couple of reasons why, particularly I think the original OGL is pretty bad. And one is that there is no limitation of liability clause within the OGL. So Chris, what's the potential outcome of not having a limitation of liability within a license like this? It's just an almost unlimited exposure to potential damages in terms of what harm might come if you run afoul of, you know, the terms of the license. So whereas a limitation of liability can at least couch the ways that somebody can't sue you for a breach of contract or a limit on how much they're able to recover from you for a breach of contract. So they're useful in terms of just understanding risk exposure and not having a limitation liability clauses. It's just an open-ended, potentially unlimited liability, especially in the IP world where, you know, damages can get pretty expensive or extensive just from statutory damages, you know, alone. So, I mean, the possibility of some kind of damages or harm coming from breach here, it's not ideal. Yeah, not ideal at all, for sure. And then the other item is that there's no indemnification clause. And indemnification is where if you breach the agreement or if some third party sues because you breached the agreement when you're using this license, you will defend and pay for the defense of Wizards of the Coast for that breach. And there's nothing in there that says that. So if they were to get sued by a third party or if you were to get sued by a third party, they could potentially be on the hook for a substantial amount of liability for exactly the damages you just mentioned, things like statutory damages. And then modern society is way different than maybe it was in the 80s and <laughs> the type of content yeah like could be a risk right like what, what yeah. types of content could they be concerned about at this stage i mean we're already kind of seeing it with the inklings in this one D, and they're trying to go away from terms like race inside the game itself so you know hot topics like misogynistic content racist content anything that's going to be just running into that sort of obscene content that Wizards of the Coast probably doesn't want associated with the brand D&D, there really wasn't anything to say don't do that for these individual content creators. And, you know, to the point you made earlier about no indemnification, if somebody came out with a clearly obscene version of Dungeons & Dragons, the most likely defendant on this 
is Wizards of the Coast, who has the deeper pockets than the individual creator that created it. And, and here they are without any kind of protections underneath their own terms of the license. They're kind of in the wind, so to speak, on a lot of these different risks that could possibly pop up. Absolutely. And then not only is there this risk of like somebody creating a racist content or sexist content or misogynistic content, but the OGL doesn't have a termination clause. Right. So right. there's no real way to terminate the license, which, by the way, is perpetual, worldwide, royalty-free, and non-exclusive. So perpetual meaning it's forever. Yeah. You can do it across the world, and it's non-exclusive. If you got a forever license to release racist content under D&D rules, that's probably a problem. It's probably something you want yeah. to fix in the next version. For sure. Yeah. So they decided, as a part of this release of One D&D, which is their new platform, yep. that they're going to change this stuff. And it's kind of an open question as to whether or not they can revoke the prior license, right? Yeah. So, I mean, by the plain terms of the license that you just mentioned, irrevocability is not stated. So there's at least an argument to stay that Wizards of the Coast can revoke it. It's a perpetual worldwide unlimited license. But they also could have specifically stated it as being irrevocable, in which they, I think, would have a much bigger problem than they currently do. But I do think it's an open question as far as, you know, to what extent and how far-reaching is that revocation? You know, how effective is this ultimately going to be? Yeah, it's interesting. Like, if I published a book under the 5th edition rules and I did it under this OGL license, can they revoke it now and can I not sell it? Like, that's the big question. Yeah, exactly. And I don't think we have a real clear answer on it. I think it's more clear that the new content should come underneath this updated version that everybody's a bit up in arms about now. But I think that exact scenario is what I think we need to sort out because what does that mean? If, if they revoke it, does that mean you can't publish new editions of it? Is it full stop, no more future sales of it, even though it was permissible under the license? I don't think it's exactly clear on what's going to happen with all of this older content that's going to be out there. Yeah, somebody's probably getting sued at some yeah, point, whether it's Wizards of the Coast or some big publisher. And that, that's another reason why they might have wanted to change the licenses. There are people making a lot of money on yeah. that original OGL license. Yep. I mean, they're like you said, Critical Role, they got to be making millions of dollars I, in their I content. I think easy, right? Yeah. Yeah, and then there's like these other third-party publishers like... I think the people that do like Pathfinder yeah, are Pathfinder, using that's it. What I was yeah, of. yeah. And, and I mean, they're big companies. Big companies, It's yeah. not Cold small potatoes. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, it's it's going to be interesting. And, and those are the ones that are going to have the resources to be able to pursue, you know, a question like this, depending on how aggressive Wizards of the Coast wants to be with this old version of the license and all the materials that were created under the old version of the license. Yeah, absolutely. So before we get into the what's in the new license, I want to talk about copyright law and just do a quick primer. So Copyright law doesn't cover rules, facts, ideas, systems, or methods. So the underlying rules of Dungeons & Dragons cannot be copyrightable. It doesn't cover short names or phrases. That's something that trademark law has to cover. Mm -hmm. And then it only covers the expression of those rules, facts, ideas, and systems. So when we talk about the expression of the way that rules are expressed or facts or ideas are expressed, we're talking about things like the published books. Yeah. Or the monster descriptions or designs, or the setting designs or descriptions. So let me ask you, do you have a good example of a setting or of a character in D&D that you think would be copyrightable? Yeah. I think the Faerun realm or whatever is probably going to be under copyright. 
water's deep. The setting is probably copyrighted by Wizards of the Coast. Famous monsters, you know, like the Beholder, the big, like, orb thing with tentacles and one big eyeball. I, I think that's original D&D creation. I don't think it was drawn from, like, mythology or anything like that, but stuff that they kind of came up with on their own. And then to the extent there's these mythological creatures that maybe aren't copyrightable, like a basic dragon, I don't think they can have a copyright over just something, a concept like that. But if it had a name or if it had a backstory, you know, the name of it, the backstory of it, the design of it, those are the things that are explicitly owned by Wizards of the Coast. Yeah, I completely agree. I was thinking Dritz Stewart and yeah. a Limster, I think, is the big, like, mage classic character. All these, like, named people that kind of find their way into D&D through books and other sources that have become kind of characters of their own. Like, that's really what we're talking about that's copyrightable among the stuff that Wizards of the Coast produces. Yeah. So let's talk about this new OGL. So OGL 1.1. Now, there are two types of license. There's a non-commercial license and a commercial license. The non-commercial license is kind of like a Creative Commons license, right? Yeah. It's essentially, you can use the content as long as you're not getting anything back of value for it. But I I did see some language in there that was interesting, at least, because they're very broad in the way they defined anything of value. So they even put in a nominal, you know, $1. Even if you received $1, we're going to consider that of value. You're going to have to comply with the commercial license use. So another thing that I think is going to be interesting to see how it shakes down is to what extent is somebody arguing that it was a non-commercial use and Wizards of the Coast is telling them that it, it isn't actually and they should have complied with the commercial use because they got something of value. You know, is it a form fill on a website and they exchanged information? Is yeah. that enough? Yeah, lead. that's I, a good question. I don't yeah. know yet. So it's, it's going to be interesting to see what they do with that. But from a top, you know, higher level, answer the question, it's... It's mainly just using it in a way where you don't expect to get any kind of value back for it. You're just sort of freely creating it and offering it up to the public for, you know, nothing, basically. Yeah, that's a really smart point. I mean, the lead magnet, right? Like, yeah. you come to my website, you get a PDF by filling out this form, and then we, we remarket to you. That seems commercial. Like, that is, yeah, that'll be interesting to see what happens. I mean, the only exception that I saw in there was just straight tips like yeah right if you're tipping us that is non-commercial that's the only thing i saw in there so there's in those lines there there is a million things that you could probably press the line with right the other interesting thing about this non-commercial license is it's a share-alike license and a share-alike license is something you see in creative commons and it's the idea that the content that you make should also be under the same license as is granted to you yep so if you make a non-commercial product within this Dungeons and Dragons world, then it can only be subject to the same terms that you got the license on, and then you have to share it with somebody else. And the underlying idea is that just like open source software, we want other people to be able to build on what you make. Yeah. So if you're claiming this type of license, they should be able to do that. Yep. And then the commercial license is really the big one. It's the one that people are complaining about and you know it's disrupting a lot of business models. The commercial and non-commercial version both allow only for the creation of role-playing games and supplements in printed media and electronic file formats that are static. Yes. So what does that mean? So it's stuff that's not like videos or virtual tabletops, 
campaigns, computer games, apps. You know, it's it's very specific to just, you know, these are the only things you can do. It's role-playing games and supplements in printed media or a PDF, basically, the static electronic file. But yeah. You could use another format, but that's probably the most common. I saw a prohibition on pantomimes, and I was like, that's oddly specific. I wonder if there is a market for D&D pantomimes. There, there must be. So another big criticism in this OGL is that a lot of people are saying that Wizards of the Coast owns your content. If you produce something under this OGL 1.1 license, then they're going to own what you produce. And so I, I got really deep into this. So I took a very specific look at this license language, and there are three categories of content. There is licensed content, which is stuff that Wizards of the Coast licensed to you. So that's rules, spells, and monsters. Yep. And then there's unlicensed content. That is stuff like we talked about before, like settings, named famous characters, famous spells, famous monsters. You can't create a role-playing game with Dritt Stewart or uh, Elimster or anyone else. Right. You got to make your own people up. Yeah. And then there's your content, and that's the stuff that you create. So your own characters, classes, settings, items, rules, etc. And under this commercial license, people are saying because of the way that licensed and unlicensed content is described in the license agreement, they own everything. Right. And that's not my read at all. My read is that they own what they own. Yep. So unlicensed and licensed content, you own what you own, but you can't create derivative works beyond the, the limitations of the license. And that's it. It's not necessarily that they own it and they can sell it. It's right. that you can't do it in an unlicensed manner. Yeah, that was my read and take on it as well. I wanted to take another look, and I want to follow up on the point about to what extent can Wizards of the Coast use or access you know, the materials that these licensees create. But the chatter seems to be exactly what you've laid out, which is people think they're losing all rights to their creation, and, and that's not what's being explicitly stated at all. The worst case scenario that I see happening is if the license does get revoked, and we'll talk about termination in, in a minute here, but the only thing that's getting revoked is your ability to use rule spells and monsters. So your creations, like your characters, your settings, you just need to then fit it into a new rule set and change spells and monsters around, which honestly doesn't seem as catastrophic as what some of the blogosphere is, is kind of currently discussing this topic as it is right now yeah i agree entirely the way i think about it is like if you've got a video game that's persistent let's say a massively multiplayer online game and you strike a deal with disney to let mickey mouse come in and and play in the gamescape and your players can interact with mickey mouse if that license ends mickey mouse is out right and yeah it's going to piss off a lot of people that mickey mouse is out but that's a part of the deal when you take a license from disney so it seems to be the same from an analytical perspective, that, that that's probably what's happening here. Yeah, I, I agree. So then we're t let's talk about money. So the commercial license has a bunch of different tiers. So it's got initiate tiers, that is 50, people who are making $50,000 or less in a year. Yep. In that case, you owe Wizards of the Coast nothing. Right. But you have to report. So you got to sign up. You have to label your stuff as creator content. Yeah. And you have to explicitly disclose that you're operating under this license, but you don't have to pay them anything. Yep. I think people are probably pissed off that they have to report. But in the IP perspective, if you don't monitor or police the marketplace, you lose your rights. So it yeah. seems to me 
relatively reasonable that Wizards of the Coast would want you to report what the hell you're doing with their content, right? Yeah, I agree with that. And I also see it from a commercial standpoint. I, I know we get a little bit sensitive about asking, you know, oh, why do I have to report to this big entity, Wizards of the Coast? But the flip side could be true. It might not be so much that they want to, for lack of a better term, prevent you from doing something by virtue of having to report to them. They might find you've got a hidden gem on your hands and they might engage in negotiations. It could be commercially beneficial for these smaller creators in the long run anyway to have these reporting and sort of brand protection measures in place by Wizards of the Coast. I don't think anybody's really thinking around it completely. They just are getting cold feet on like, well, why do I have to give them this information and what are they going to do with this information? It, it could actually be a benefit for both Wizards of the Coast and these smaller creators, depending on, you know, what they've got on their hands. Yeah, that's a great point. It's like Aria Salvatore comes with you with uh, Homeworld, uh, well, I, don't, I can't remember what the first series of the Driz Jordan character I think was. That was. Yeah. And he has this character and he's making 25K a year and, you know, Wizards of the Coast looks at it and they're like, this is really freaking good. Yeah. Like we should promote this and turn this into something other than just a OGL creation. Like this should be canon content. Yeah, you're absolutely right. That's it's a great point because I wasn't thinking about it that way, but that's certainly an opportunity for both parties to make more money. I think so. And it's built in there to some degree with them explicitly stating what, you know, they don't own, which is the creators, you know, individual content. So yeah, you can negotiate a deal. Yeah. Potentially could be, I think. Yeah, that's a great point. Intermediate tier, that's 50K or more, but less than 750,000. And then expert tier, 750,000. Oh, you know what, Chris? I messed up. I said reporting starts at 50K. Oh, yeah, right. I'm it's, looking at my notes. It's it's 50K or above, Yeah, up to 750,000. So, so nothing, if it's 50 or K less, you basically are just in this initiate tier. And then once you start making decent you know, figures up until 750, they just at least want you to be in communication about what you're creating. Yeah, that's right. And then 750,000 or more, you have to register your content just like at the intermediate tier, you have to tell about your products and product sales, and then you have to use this creator product badge, but then you have to pay a royalty of 20 to 25% on qualifying revenue in excess of that 750,000. And there's a interesting discount here, right? Yeah. It's, it got very specific with the crowdfunded projects and what constitutes quote unquote qualifying revenue it got a little bit in the weeds. I didn't do a deep enough dive on it, but essentially the crowdfunded projects are going to be treated slightly differently in terms of the way they're calculating this royalty fee. That's what I got out of it. Yeah. So what I saw was like, they must've struck a deal with Kickstarter. Yeah. So Kickstarter gets 20%. I mean, you, you only have to pay 20% in royalties if you sell your product through Kickstarter or if you crowdfund through Kickstarter, anywhere else it's 25%. Okay. So there's some sweetheart deal that they struck obviously with Kickstarter that resulted in that. And then these royalty payments start January 1st of 2024. So, I mean, that's pretty good. Like you got a whole year before I have to pay anything. So you've got a year of ramp up and then payments due March 31st of the succeeding year. So you got time to do calculation and, Reconcile. Yeah, reconcile. And I'm sure there's going to be fights over whether something constitutes qualifying revenue. That's the the thing. I mean, it's the language, uh, even under this new agreement, isn't as great as it probably could be or should be. I mean, qualifying revenue in excess of 750,000, is that a net figure? Is that a gross figure? I don't think they really specified what 750 is. So it's going to get messy eventually, but 
The other thing I wanted to bring up on this topic too is because we're seeing a lot of chatter about this royalty fee, but there's only a handful of creators out there that are actually in this 750000 and above echelon. I think I saw a number like 20. There's like 20 people that are actually making this kind of money. So we're in a very limited pool of people that will even be subject to a royalty fee. I get that they don't necessarily want to cut anything back to Wizards of the Coast, especially when they've enjoyed a royalty-free license under 1.0 of the OGL. But at the same time, they're also building a pretty hefty empire of their own on the backs of Wizards of the Coast IP. I mean, there's, there's value in there, and I don't really put fault on Wizards of the Coast for wanting to try to you know, recoup some of that. So I'm going to defend a major corporation, which is not usually my character, but I'm just going to do it anyway. I mean, I think this is a really, really innovative license agreement. I think obviously OGL 1.0A is... Yeah incredible for creators yeah but it's an outlier like there is no license agreement like that in any industry in the world and it was a mistake honestly like i think if you were to look back with a lawyer eye and you're advising wizards of the coast at that time you're probably telling them not to do that right yeah 100 percent. when did this ogl license came out was it around 2000 or yeah it was like 20 years ago. yeah it was a long time ago long i time mean ago. if you think about where the internet even was back then like we didn't have google we didn't have youtube we didn't have kickstarter we didn't have any of these things or, or any real social media platforms it was everybody kind of had their own network the, the reach of the internet was much less Coupled with the fact that, like we discussed earlier at the top of this episode, the, the reach of the D&D game itself wasn't where it's at currently. I mean, I'd be hard-pressed to go back in time and have Wizards of the Coast kind of going through the rhetoric of trying to figure out 20 years down the line, is this license still going to be you know, applicable? I think I would have advised that we should be careful as far as what we say in that license you know, perpetual, revocable, like we should probably have some some pretty clear guardrails, at least on that piece. But I don't think they expected it to get anywhere near this. And and now, you know, here we are where they're kind of trying to backfill a mistake that they made and people are getting a little bit upset, and rightly so to, yeah. to some degree. But it's, yeah, I, I, I think it had to be fixable, though. It had, yeah, to, be it had to be fixed. And, and not only did it have to be fixed, it, it just had to be updated. It just doesn't, like you said, it doesn't make sense for the modern era. There's so many different platforms of distribution. There's so many people making so much money now. Yeah. You know, you were in-house at a tech company. And in that role, you negotiated license deals with big companies. I mean, yeah. bigger than Wizards of the Coast. I mean, I've never been in-house. so, But to me, intuitively, it seems like these terms are killer, right? Like, Oh, yeah. In comparison to the types of deals that you would have gotten in your prior role as in-house counsel for a tech company negotiating brand deals, right? would you agree with me on that? Oh, 100%. I mean, this is like a sweetheart of a deal. If somebody, if they had came to us with a deal like this and, and they were just asking for a royalty payment once we hit 750000 once we align on what that actually means, but we'll just say $750,000, I'd be like, yeah, that's that's great. We can make... $750,000 without any kind of royalty payment back up to Wizards of the Coast and can essentially use most of their IP. That's a sweet deal. It's a sweet deal. I mean, it's just unheard of. It. Yeah. And, like, if you went to the NFL, there's no way in hell the NFL is no. talking to you unless you deposit $100,000 in cash. Yeah. Same with the MLB. 
Same with other bigger brands like uh, the Nintendo company, most sports brands. On top of that, you have to go through, the biggest thing was keeping control over the way that you express the content and the ideas, meaning that in this tech company that I worked for, they had a lot of user-generated content and wanted to kind of capitalize on individual artists, creative expressions of these different, you know, bigger brands, but these bigger brands wanted nothing to do with that approach. They wanted full control over the quality of the design and what was in it, in addition to high license fees. And, and it was license fees that would be, most of them would have a yearly fee that we had to meet regardless of whether we sold anything. So it's compared to what else is out there or what license deals look like from large brands to medium to small size creators, you're not getting a deal like that. Yeah. And I'm glad I had you on this today because like that is the perspective that I think people are missing in this conversation. It's like, this is so far afield of what's market yeah, that it really is a good deal. And I think that Obviously, creators are upset. They have a right to be upset. Yeah. But my hope is in having this conversation, we create some structure around what is actually there to be upset about. And yeah, I mean, in the stuff that I've seen in the private sector, like this is a sweetheart. I mean, 20% on a major IP is right. like crazy. It, it is. is. You're never going to get that. No, no, not at all. Well, thanks, Chris. I really appreciate it. I think this is really helpful. Again, this is the May It Please the Internet podcast. I'm John DiGiacomo, joined by Chris Carroll today. We thank you very much and tune in next time.